Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. Welcome to Race and Democracy. We have a special guest today is uh, Professor Darren K. Roberts, um, who's right here at UT um, and director for the founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation, uh, which was created in the fall of 2014. Uh, Professor Roberts is a former NFL coach and author of Call and Audible, Let My Pivot from Harvard Law to NFL Coach Inspire Your Transition, which was published in 2017 by Greenleaf. Call and Audible was named a number one release and bestseller by Amazon and Sports Illustrated selected the book as one of its best sports business books of 2017. Um, the, it's, it's so good to have you here. Thank uh, you for Darren. having me. I appreciate it. Uh, Harvard Law to um, coaching in the NFL and now heading um, a center for sports leadership and excellence that looks at race, that looks at sports, that looks at uh, equity and achievement. Uh, before I even get into a general question, I want to ask you about your story because this is truly... Uh, remarkable story. What is your background? Um, you know, what got you interested in both uh, the academic side, um, Harvard Law, but also coaching um, and and sports and 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 you know all of this that that you do because this is so relevant uh, right now. Yeah. No, I appreciate it. It's um, you know I'll, I'll start with this. I'm a fifth generation East Texan. So I was born and raised in a town called Mount Pleasant. Um, at the time, it had 12,291 people. So I can still remember like the signs on the highway. Um, when I was seven, my dad took out a map of, it was a surveyor's map of Panola County. So he grew up in a town called Carthage, also in East Texas. And it showed a plot of land which had 153 acres. And it was owned by Bill Roberts. And, you know, as listeners out there will know, 1870, that's only five years removed from the end of the Civil War. This is a county that sent troops to the Confederacy. And my dad said to me, we still don't know how your great, great grandfather got this land. Like, there's no clue. We don't have any records of how this black man got 153 acres five years removed from the Civil War. It's remarkable. He said, but I, I know he didn't get it from sleeping in. So that was sort of my, um, for me, it set an expectation on, on, on what I wanted to achieve. So I, I get to the University of Texas. Um, when I landed at UT in 97, the goal was to be governor of Texas by 40. Um, the man I looked up to the most was Marlon Whitley, who was the student body president at the time. So I come in at the, I'm in the first post-Hopwood class at UT. So all of the... And can you tell our listeners what Hopwood yes, is? Yes, Supreme yes, Court yes, case. yes, Supreme Court case. So um, the Hopwood decision, and, and there's a bit of controversy, but the Attorney General of Texas construed the Hopwood decision um, in a very strict manner, and many people felt like it went overboard. But he decided to force all Texas public institutions to essentially dismantle um, diversity programs. So there's a program here that was called um, the Preview Program, which is African-American and Latino students would come here earlier in the summer to kind of get their, their feet wet. 
Um, I had cousins who had gone through the program. I signed up for it. I walked into the first meeting and I thought, I'm in the wrong room. Not that many people look like me. Um, and affirmative action wasn't, you know, race can be used as a factor in admissions in that year. So this was a high watermark or a low watermark, I guess, kind of depending on looking at the history of the university. There was a lot of racial tension. Um, a law professor on campus, Lino Graglia, made some disparaging comments about black students. There were sit-ins at the law school, sit-ins in the tower. And I had this African-American man, Marlon Whitley, as a student body president leading the student movement. And I remember thinking, I want to be like that guy. Um, and there had only been two previous student body presidents who were black in the history of UT. And what made you want to be governor at 40? What, what made you so interested in politics yeah. and policy? That's a good question. I think that I adopted the goals of a lot of people around me. I don't think I had a real genuine interest in it. I was in debate, I played football, but my parents were very, you know, for them, football was just an extracurricular thing I did on the side. I wasn't to look at it as any sort of post-high school activity. Um, it was all academics for me. And I was in debate and, and was doing well. And so people said, hey, you should be a lawyer, one, and you should get in politics. And so I kind of adopted that view. So that, that was the goal at 18. Um, I was fortunate to win uh, student body president my last year. I'm riding high. I think I'm the smartest guy on campus. Apply to Harvard Law School, get waitlisted. Mm. Um, so at that time, I was in a very linear, if A, then B, kind of B, then C type mm. of roadmap. And that completely sort of derailed me a bit. Uh, I had a mentor who got a job for me on Senator Joe Lieberman's staff. I go to D.C. I'm there for 9-11. Um, I get an education in government that I couldn't really have anticipated. Um, and then on my fourth attempt to get into Harvard Law School, I got off the wait list my fourth year. So I was waitlisted four years in a row. Wow. Um, get so that shows some real persistence. Yeah, so. you know, I, I oftentimes wonder what would I have done if the answer had been no, an outright rejection. And some of the research I do is around rejection now. Um but even my mom, she's like, listen, you're not getting any younger, so go somewhere. I said, I'm going to give it one more try. So I got in, uh, and I was on my path to becoming an attorney, randomly worked a football camp the summer before I graduated. It was the best 72 hours of my life. And uh, you had played football, Darren. So mm -hmm. what, what was your position? You know? yeah, so I was a 166-pound strong safety for the Mount Pleasant Tigers. Oh, that's great. That's and if I'll tell you the funny thing about if we you know we look at race and sports, I was also in the gifted and talented program, which I actually wasn't supposed to be. I missed the cutoff in the third grade by one point. My mom was an elementary school principal. She went to the superintendent's house and said, "You're going to put my son in GT." She sort of got what would happen. You know, she understood that from that third grade on. There was there were these two separate tracks for classes. So I didn't see people who looked like me in my high school classes, calculus, AP English, AP history. I was one of two black students in those classes. So for me, football was a way for me to hang around with guys that I went to church with. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so tell me about uh, briefly, because I have so yeah, much to ask yeah, yeah. you about Harvard Law. Um, how was that experience? And then... 
Yeah, Harvard Law, it was, um, you know, the first year's a grind. Harvard Law graduates the second highest number of black students only to Howard. So there was a vibrant black community. Um, I had I had a I had three black professors that I really I mean they sort of they were my Virgil kind of shepherding me through Charles law Ogletree school. one of those Ogletree was one yeah, of that's them. That's a friend. That's a oh friend. man, I, I mean, um, incredible human. Um, David Wilkins was another one. Um, Kennedy was another one. Randy Kennedy. Randy Kennedy. Randy yeah, yeah, yeah. He oversaw my thesis, and so um, I was going to practice in Houston. A buddy asked me to work at a football camp with him. I'm like, I'll just do it for fun. I end up getting in, I get a group of 66th graders I'm coaching. I love it. Decide that I'm going to graduate, but write a letter to every team in the NFL. Uh, Get 31 rejections. Herm Edwards with the Kansas City Chiefs calls me up and says, I've got a gig for you. So um, I went. I was a training camp intern. Uh, didn't sleep, 18-hour days, just did whatever they wanted me to do. He hired me on full-time the next year. And what was your position? I was a defensive backs coach. So the first two years, I was a quality control coach, which is just a glorified gopher. You know, if people need lunch, you go get it. Um, But I also helped the defensive coordinator look through film of other teams and kind of pinpoint plays. Um, Coached in Detroit, coached defensive backs in Detroit as an assistant coach for uh, two years. Two years in West Virginia with the Mountaineers. I coached receivers one year, DBs the second year. And then my last stop was in Cleveland with the Browns in 2013. And uh, we were all fired after our first season. So Did you uh, coach defensive backs there too? So there I was sort of a catch-all. I worked with the defensive line. Uh, I was the chief of staff for the defensive side of the ball. Um, and enjoyed it, but I was never home. Never saw my kid. So I, I decided afterwards, a quick story. I get fired. I go home. That day I'm scrambling eggs. My three-year-old son comes up to me and says, you eat breakfast? And I was like, what's this kid talking about? My wife said, when was the last time you had breakfast with Dylan? And it just hit me. I've been spending all my time with other people's sons. So that motivated me to come back to UT. And five years later, um, you know, I'm loving the, loving the work that I'm doing here in the classroom. So tell me about the classroom. I want to talk about the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation. What do you do? What are your goals, your ambitions? And and then we'll get into some larger questions about race and student-athletes yeah. as well. So we want to change the conversation around sports leadership. And in particular, I teach a signature course here that really boils down the leadership principles that not just athletes, but, but all of us need to hone in order to be effective leaders. And then the second half of the course is financial literacy management. And the class we have, so I teach every freshman athlete over the course of a year. But half of the class is set up for athletes, half for non-athletes. So you've got this very 50-50 split between athletes Mm -hmm. and non-athletes. So you start to see the computer science major and um, the sociology major on the football team interact And I've had football players come up to me and say, man, I thought I was working hard. But the girl who's in my group has been coding for nine hours straight on some program. Like, there's a different type of work. And I've had the computer coder say, I didn't really respect athletes because I thought that they kind of had, you know, um, the favoritism on campus tends to flow there. Mm -hmm. But, man, this guy had to get up at 430 to go for check-in, weigh-in. 
workouts. And so there's a mutual respect mm-hmm. that's engendered there. And when you talk about leadership, Darren, what are some of the principles yeah. of leadership that you, you So discuss? I start with Brene Brown's work around vulnerability and empathy. Um, and vulnerability, we really spend some time on how, how, what are the steps towards self-awareness? Like, how can you take an honest inventory of where you are now? Empathy. How can I put myself in the shoes of someone else? May not be from your same part of town. We may not have the same eye color. Parents do different things. But can I, can I at least see how you have arrived at this particular position or viewpoint, regardless of whether or not I agree with it? Mm. We talk about subconscious bias. Um, they have to take the implicit association test to really, it identifies the different biases that you have. And it becomes this moment where people look around and think, I, I didn't even know, obviously, that I held these beliefs. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so that, that's been a transformative class for me. I've done that for four years. We also train high school student athletes with the same curriculum that we use in the classroom. Um, we work with college coaches. We're now working with some NFL players who are transitioning out of the league. So. No, this is all great. This dovetails into what I, 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 you know, when I thought about inviting you on, I wanted to talk to you about really race and sport in America. Mm. NFL, you've coached in the NFL. I wanted to talk to you about Colin Kaepernick. Mm. And now not just Colin Kaepernick, but people like, um, you know, Nick Bosa and, and, and <laughs> you know, um, president of the United States. And it's so interesting to me that race has always been something that is a dividing line in America, but also... At times, when you think about Jackie Robinson breaking hmm. the color line in 1947, or even a Jack Johnson and then a Joe Lewis, it's also been when, when a black excellence and black genius in sport has been a way of, um, at times, transcending those differences um, in certain moments. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Bill Russell, you think about in the 1960s, and Bill Russell was interracially married, um, a big staunch champion of civil rights, yeah. um, and winning all those titles in Boston. In Boston, 11, of all places. 13 years. <laughs> yeah. But Bill Russell has been very open about how much racism and, and uh, uh, discrimination he faced and the yeah. politics and challenges of white supremacy that he faced. Uh, Muhammad Ali is venerated in 2016, really a three-day state funeral. But Ali was really viciously, viciously denunciated for uh, refusing to fight in the Vietnam War. And you can go on and on about Serena Williams and and sort of black women athletes and their bodies and how they're denigrated. But I want to talk about race and sport. Um, and what is that, you know, what does that mean to you, especially somebody who's coached at, at the highest professional level also um, in, in college, but also now being at UT where we have these world-class female and male athletes. Um, of all races and all backgrounds. Um, I want to talk yeah. about um, I teach a class called Leadership Strategy in Sports. It's a small seminar course. Uh, the first book we read is William Roden's $40 Million Slaves. Um, so for listeners out there, if you haven't read it, this is something you, you get today. Um, there has never been a point in the in the story of American sports where um, blacks have not figured prominently into the landscape. We could be talking about um, plantation relay races, right? Um, two plantations closely situated bring a team of slaves together and they will run, they had track events, essentially. 
um, you know, two weeks removed from the Kentucky Derby, people don't remember that the majority of the early winners, so 75% of those early winners, black jockeys, black jockeys. Um, until the rules were changed yeah. to kind of... And there's uh, a whole great scholarship on this in terms yes. of historians have really paid attention to what you just said yeah. about black jockeys. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's it's interwoven in so many different places. And so I try to first make the the point that there is no separation. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't, you can't, there isn't a point in the genesis of sports in America where the black athlete has not figured prominently into that narrative. Um, Why is it so transformative now? Because... When I think about black athletes in the 1960s, there was all this protest and disruption for a time, including a University of Wyoming team and a football team that multiple black players lost their scholarship because they refused to play a game. You flash forward over 50 years later, University of Missouri, Mm. um, black athletes said, we're not going to play. And they got the president um, and the chancellor eventually fired and lost their jobs. Um, Why is it? It seemed like in the 1980s, we had a lull where we had uh, sports icons like Michael Jordan um, in the 90s, Tiger Woods. Um, You think about Carl Lewis um, in the Olympics, who weren't really um, vocal about not just racial pride, but about advocating for racial justice. Mm. Right. They they really thought to themselves and publicly, Michael Jordan said, well, Republicans buy shoes, too. (laughs) And he refused to. um, speak out against Jesse Helms in his home state of North Carolina, the segregationist se- former senator. Yeah. Um, why the change? Why Colin Kaepernick, LeBron James, um, Chris Paul, uh, Serena and Venus mm. Williams, where people are vocally speaking out about justice? And these are people who are multimillionaires. Some of them are on their way to becoming billionaires. Yeah, I think that there is a sense, and I agree with this um, assessment, I think if you look at the arc of activism among black athletes, there is this lull period between the mid 70s to probably the early 2000s where you get the sense that high profile African-American athletes in general swapped capital for advocacy. Derek Jeter. Derek exactly. Like there, there was a very conscious play that said, okay, listen, I can't monetize my skill set and advocate publicly um, on black issues because there's a there was sort of this false dichotomy. It's a zero one game, mm-hmm. and then you have this resurgence. And I'm not sure of the why. I think I think this new age of athlete, the LeBron James, and um, you know the list kind of goes on and on. I think at some point they understood that their value transcended sales, and that they could influence the market in a way. That any minor sort of uh, falls in sales would would kind of overcome. I, I think a guy like you know LeBron James knows that he is the most prominent athlete on the planet, mm-hmm. and so he's willing to he's willing to be at the forefront of the conversation. Um, and I also think it's how athletes, our black athletes historically, respond to social movements. Yes, because I think that what, what we usually think the the other way around we want celebrities whether they're musicians whether they're athletes we want them to lead but what really leads are social movements which impact and we think about dr king in this sense 
Dr. King and the civil rights movement and Fannie Lou Hamer and the other folks who were involved, they're the ones who impacted the entire world. And so then presidents had to respond. Kennedy, Johnson responded one way. Presidents like Nixon and others <laughs> responded in other ways, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's the same with athletes. I think the reason why these athletes are getting so involved is that their response to Black Lives Matter, their response to social justice has been where it's touched their hearts. And I think it goes back to what you said, and I think brilliantly, mm-hmm. about leadership in terms of empathy and, and reading Brene Brown and, and reading William C. Roden mm-hmm. um, and, and reading all this, this, this scholarship and this, these, this, this intellectual and pedagogical information that really says that, look, movements impact people and then leadership is having a capability to really search within yourself and say, how is this, for instance, the shooting of Trayvon Martin in 2012? It was LeBron James who's, they're wearing t-shirts. Yes. They're wearing t-shirts and some, we've had black women and basketball players, they're wearing t-shirts, don't arrest me. They're wearing t-shirts, I can't breathe. And that was leadership. So LeBron James at that point, he doesn't hold a press conference. He's just saying, look, and he's telling everybody, I'm going to wear this shirt. And everybody says, well, if you're going to wear this I'm shirt. Wear yeah. and, and, you know, and, and it's, it, it's so, you know, I think that I oftentimes think of that situ, uh, you know, LeBron in the, in the I Can't Breathe shirt. And I think of the Clippers response to Donald Sterling's, the audio recordings um, where he's using racial slurs. And I've oftentimes thought, you know, the Clippers response was to wear their pre-game jerseys inside out. Yes. And I asked my class this, wonder if Blake Griffin says, wonder if Blake Griffin says, I'm not playing. I'm not playing tonight. Right? What if the what if the starting five say we're not playing tonight? In the play in the game three of the playoffs, I said, I guarantee you concessions would be made across the board from the NBA headquarters on down to the club level because they gotta have that game go off. Mm-hmm. Right? And I say, I'm not judging their level of, of, of activism, but I always wonder, I think we're getting closer to this point of realization where athletes understand that they really move the needle. And you mentioned the University of Missouri's uh, case from 2014. That to me is maybe the strongest. If I look back over the last decade, student athletes at a public university who are beholden to the scholarship call out the administration within 48 hours of a tweet the chancellor and the president are gone they say we're not playing BYU this Saturday at Arrowhead unless something changes 48 hours the top two the top the top two folks in the at the helm of this educational institution gone and I show our athletes and I say look at this (laughs) right I mean look you're generating all this revenue for the institution absolutely Think about what kind of power comes with that. So, I, I, I want to talk about when we think about black student athletes, and I know your course deals with this. What do you think um, are the stereotypes that are attached to that, mm-hmm. both black women and men? And where, where do you think um, both the work you're doing is trying to shatter the stereotypes, mm-hmm. but also empower um, these student athletes to sort of leverage both the educational and the networking opportunities they're getting while they're yeah. here? but to also understand how they're being utilized in the context of this institution, you know? Yeah, so... so Especially in an institution, I'll add that we are only 4% African-American undergraduates. 
But when we think about when you, if anybody comes to the University of Texas at Austin and looks at the football team and looks at the basketball team and some of these other teams, black athletes make up much more than 4%. Yeah, in the 70s, right? And, and so, so week three of my course, I asked the students, all the students in the class, I say, write down for me which sports at the University of Texas are profitable. By that I mean they generate more revenue than they spend. Then I ask for them, and I'll get answers like golf, uh, swimming and diving, volleyball, men's basketball, women's basketball. And then I will pull up, the Texas Tribune does a great piece each year where they do an open records request for all the public institutions, and they show the numbers by public institution for each sport. The only two sports in the black at the University of Texas, by the way, just 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 um, was just named the most uh, valuable college sports brand, about a billion dollars. The only two sports, football, men's basketball, every other sport, the University of Texas loses money every single year. That's amazing. So they everyone pauses from my from my non-athlete to athlete. And then I said, well, what does this say? And I'll have football players say, we're, we're funding this operation. We're essentially funding the rowing team when it goes up to Amherst and competes in the regatta. That's football money. It's true. And so well, what does it say about your agency and your ability to influence and make change? And this is when I bring in the Missouri situation. And I said, look, my job is not to tell you what I think you should do. I just want to show you the the ways that people have leveraged their capital. And then you think through how you want to respond, whether it's a tweet or whether it's, um, you know, a, a video on Instagram on a, on a certain topic. I said, you need to just know that you have options as it relates to expressing your viewpoint on things that you see. Absolutely, because I think one of the things that our black athletes especially don't realize is their self-worth. And I, in that sense, I I wanna um, be sure to disaggregate this from just uh, an economic or um, monetary worth, just their self-worth. What what are they worth as human beings? What treatment um, should they be willing to accept? What treatment should they be willing to give to others? And that's where your whole discussion of empathy comes in. And I think once you have your real self-worth, and I remember people like uh, Bill Roden growing up, but also um, uh, the late Ralph Wiley Mm. um, and a whole team of black journalists who were talking about this when we were in high school and we were in elementary school, they were talking about the value of black athletes both in terms of their personal worth, but what was their value within the context of liberal democratic capitalism? Yes. Or now neoliberalism, right? And where everything, our whole lives are now brands. I'm not saying that this is how it should be, but this idea of monetization, privatization, commodification, and this is connected to Instagram, it's connected to Facebook, it's connected to even wellness, it's connected to mass incarceration, but it's also even connected to people who are against mass incarceration. So Brian Stevenson, who I love, I think should win the Nobel Peace Prize, but he has a brand too. I'm not saying he's done it, but 
equal justice initiative and then the lynching memorial is a is a brand Absolutely. it's a brand right so everything is monetized right and so once we can if we can figure out a way to turn these young people into critical thinkers. Like you said, Darren, we're not trying to do remote control, but it's going to be interesting to see what are their responses to understanding their self-worth. Yes. And that, you know, that self-worth, that identity foreclosure that you can trace back to the first time one of them hit a home run or, or scored three touchdowns, and I've seen this in my small town of Mount Pleasant. All of a sudden, your social validation comes from last Friday's production. At no point did someone come up to me and say, hey, man, I heard you got the, the chemistry academic award. That, that's great. They did know if I had an interception in, in last Friday's game. I could get a free burger at Dairy Queen if I had an interception. right? So I think this identity foreclosure, what happens is if that's the validation that I'm getting from people around me, I start to see myself as athlete and not as student, not as brother, not as a member of the community. My value is coming from this from this activity that I do. And so a large part of my class is let's look at your skill set beyond the field. Take that away. What do you what do you bring to society that is separate from what you do on Saturdays. And it's an eye-opening experience. And we, I mean, we get really deep within vulnerability. And you see some guys and gals start to question, man, like, what am I doing? Like, my dream was to, you know, my, my dream was to be a, a, a videographer. But I had the scholarship, and so I, I came to UT. But to what extent, because of the time demands, am I sacrificing my ability to hone that craft because you can't, you can't lift weights and shoot videos at the same time, you know? So, um, I will say that I'm hopeful because I think that there is going to be a, another wave of, um, there will be another reckoning, especially at the collegiate level. I think that the NCAA, it's structure. There are already a lot of structural cracks there. I think we're gonna. It's gonna be interesting to watch over the next decade. What we saw with O'Bannon, I think there will be a second wave of litigation that I hope brings about some um, some structural changes that I think are are necessary. And of course, Ed O'Bannon is the the, the forward who used to play at UCLA who filed a a, a suit um, um, about NCAA using his image um, uncompensated. You know, Ed O'Bannon's image was 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 in there. And um, how was that? Settled. So it, it was settled, and so the the basic here's here's what the status is now. An NCAA athlete cannot monetize his or her own likeness or image while they are playing the collegiate sport. And I always use I wrote this piece up a couple of years ago. I said, look, I've had a I had a computer science major in my in my uh, class. Um, within her first semester, she didn't like it here, and she wanted to go to Penn State. She reapplied to Penn State. They said she can get in. She told me it was been a, it's been a great experience, and she left. She went north. No deans here at UT had to sign off on it. There were no waivers required. She just left. I've had students who raised money. I had one student who raised over 500K for her startup. From wealthy donors, some in New York, some hedge funds. No scrutiny. 
if um, a woman on the softball team goes to Starbucks with an alum and that alum buys a latte for her, $3.19, that's an extra benefit. And so she is in violation of the NCAA rule. There's a problem with that. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is these, these are the formative years where you're starting to build that foundation for a network. And you're not allowing... I would say a lot of the people who need it most because their time is so limited, they need even more of those connections to be made. But but there that that isn't an option for the fear of contravening NCAA rules. Well, this is uh, leading up to my I've got two final questions. Yeah, 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 yeah. Really. Um, what's the future of both student athletes and this is disproportionately affect black athletes when we think about football and basketball of. Um, getting some kind of compensation from the NCAA. And what I mean here by compensation, however you want to measure it, it could it be a lifetime of um, medical and health benefits for students and their families um, that is pristine, the kind we get at UT or better as, as, as <laughs> yeah. professors? Um, um, could it be a, a, a stipend? Could it be um, a 401k that's built over the four years that you're in college or the two or three years that you're in college? Um, what do you think in terms of what's the future of compensation? I think, you know, you mentioned some options and on that, on that spectrum, I think what probably, so two years ago, there was a cost of attendance overhaul in which right now, if you're a UT football player or women's basketball player, you'll get $4,000 from the university. And that was sort of an appeasement tool in response to O'Bannon. We're not going to pay you. Uh, what you're what you're worth, but we'll give all of you the same amount to adjust for travel to and from home, et cetera. I think the next wave will be the insurance benefits because I think that's a kind of a low lying fruit for institutions. So we may see um, as litigation kind of ramps up that there'll be some lifetime sort of health benefits. Um, the last frontier will be compensation. I think if you zoom out from what's happening in America, Brexit, like this, this wave um, across the world as it relates to inequity, mm-hmm. I think that those clouds will sit over the NCAA and collegiate athletes. And I think that there will be some legislation in some jurisdiction that's going to force some sort of compensation model. It may end up in a trust fund. Um but I just I always tell I always tell people I said you know I can't think of any other industry or sector in the marketplace where people aren't compensated based on their value. They may be undercompensated, but there is some level of real compensation. Um, the fact that Vince Young's picture is down at the the UT co-op, the first thing you're going to see is him holding the ball over the pylon from the 05 national championship game. That money doesn't go to him comes to UT, he's got a UT helmet on, that's UT's money. So Nike's paying UT, Nike's not paying number 10. That's a problem mm-hmm. in my mind, in terms of equity. Does UT, final question, yeah. does UT do enough uh, in terms of um, preparing our black student athletes, mm-hmm. um, all our student athletes, but really our student athletes of color who are in a different position uh, for success yeah. um, post their collegiate experience? I think we have work to do. I will say that you know, I've traveled around the country the last four or five years. Um, some people may say I'm biased because I'm an alum. 
But if you look at the work of the Division for Diversity and Community Engagement, um, the Black Student Athlete Summit that's held every January, but even smaller interventions, pulling um, men and women of color into small groups and helping them navigate the collegiate process of the four years, I think we have as robust of a sort of of a, um, a bundle of interventions and support programs at UT than anywhere else. Um, I think that we all acknowledge that there is a lot more that we can do. I think particularly for me, there are a lot of problems, but we need to find some better ways to get folks connected to people in the community, in the UT community, that can help them in the future, not just from a monetization standpoint, but from advice. Like We're not doing a good enough job of bringing those folks together and kind of cultivating those relationships. Um, so that's one front that I think that we can improve on. All right, you'll have the last word, Darren Roberts. <laughs> it's been great speaking to you. Uh, Darren Roberts serves as founding director of the Center for Sports Leadership and Innovation here at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, he is a former NFL coach, uh, graduate of Harvard Law School uh, and the University of Texas at Austin, and author of the best-selling Call and Audible, Let My Pivot from Harvard Law to NFL Coach Inspire Your Transition. And it's been an inspiring conversation. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Dr. Joseph. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode. And you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph. That's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H. And our website, csrd.lbj.utexas.edu. And the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you. Thank you.